Happy 4th of July weekend, Purpose Church. Great, great to see you. I hope you're having a good weekend. Maybe the reason you're online is because you're traveling. And if so, you've experienced the high gas prices uh, that we've been uh, having here and all through our country. Uh, here are some of my favorite memes about that. Here's next year's car show due to gas prices. <laughs> All right, here's the next one. With the price of gas, you better believe that I'm going to do it in one trip. One trip with those gas prices. Uh, here's another one. I finally found a car that fits my gas budget. Um, next one. Beer is now cheaper than gas. Drink, don't drive. And uh, then this final one. This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine. Let's continue our summer series, Dear Church, the book of Revelation. The title of today's study is Trumpets. These are trumpets of judgment based on Revelation chapters eight and nine. Now the beginning chapters of the book of Revelation and the ending chapters of the book of Revelation, they're a little bit easier uh, to understand and to interpret. Uh, but boy, these middle chapters that we're in right now are really, really tough. So as Pastor Eric said last Sunday, buckle on your, your uh, theological seatbelt because we are in for a ride. But as you do so, remember, and I think because it's such a difficult book, God gave us this present at the very uh, beginning verses of the book of Revelation. Remember, Revelation is the only book of the Bible that specifically says that there is a blessing for anyone who reads it, listens to it, and studies it. Only book of the Bible that says if you read this book, if you study this book, there's a blessing in store for you, for our church, for you as you follow Christ. Now, we need to review almost every week the four views of the book of Revelation that uh, Pastor Eric and I are using as we approach this book. Four different views, we kind of like all of them. Number one is called the historicist approach where Revelation surveys the whole of church history. This is the idea that Revelation uh, chapters one through 22 is like an overview in advance, a prophetic overview of the entire book of Revelation. Then there's the preterist approach where the fulfillment is strictly in the past, shortly after it was written. Uh, preterist comes from the Latin word preter, praetor, uh, from which we get our word past. And so everything happened shortly after uh, the book was written. And then number three, the futurist approach. Everything after chapter three awaits fulfillment in the future. So it's still ahead of us, <coughs> primarily uh, having to do with the second coming of Christ. And then number four, the symbolic approach is the symbols in Revelation are just principles uh, for living the Christian life for any group of Christians in any generation. Then there's number five, and this is the approach that uh, Pastor Eric and I are, are, are taking, is that all of the above have, have a certain um, wisdom to them, that, that really it fits, it fits uh, each of them. Now we're looking for maybe some uh, easier words for the rest of the series. We kind of had a halftime conference on it. And uh, Pastor Eric and I were talking about, you know, to make these a little bit easier to remember. The historicist approach is really 
uh, just uh, the church through all the ages, uh, every generation. The Preterist approach is kind of like the church of the past. The Futurist approach is the church of the future. And then the symbolic approach is kind of uh, back to the historicist approach where it's, it's for everybody in all uh, generations. But we believe that really all of the above, uh, God was doing all of them at the same time. And there's a justification for this because of what we see in the Old Testament. There's really a, a precedent for this in the Old Testament that we're applying our all of above approach uh, with these different approaches and views uh, to the book of Revelation. Uh, for example, I've used this illustration before. In the Old Testament, when the, a prophet would give a prophecy, it was like a set of mountain ranges. Uh, you see the, the near ridge of the, of the mountains, and then a medium ridge, and then a faraway ridge, or a near range, uh, a medium mountain range, and a faraway distant mountain range. So when the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Daniel and Hosea and Joel and Nahum, when they would, <coughs> when they would do a prophecy, <coughs> when they would make a prophecy, sometimes it would have uh, three different fulfillments to it. There'd be a fulfillment, say, about 70 years in the future because that would have to do with the fall of uh, Israel, Samaria, and the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., or the fall of Jerusalem in Judah in 586 B.C. So sometimes it would have a 70-year-from-now a fulfillment, and then it would have an in-between when Christ would come the first time. So say a six or 700-year fulfillment, and then thousands of years in the distance having to do with the second coming of Christ. Now, there are some pretty crazy prophecies that we're gonna see in Revelation today. So why should we build our lives on a book that's 2,000 years old? Well, here's why. There are 2,500 prophecies in the Bible. 2,000 have already been fulfilled. They were given hundreds, sometimes thousands of years in advance. They've been already fulfilled in complete detail with zero errors. So the 2,500 prophecies, 2,000 have already been fulfilled. They've proven themselves to be true and 500 have yet to be fulfilled. The chance that these 2,000 could have been fulfilled by chance are one in 10 to the 2,000th power, that is one with 2,000 zeros after it. So the remaining 500 that have yet to be fulfilled uh, have to do with the second coming of Christ. So you've heard maybe that saying before, all that I understand about God leads me to trust him in that which I do not yet understand. And so to apply it to this principle here, if we could go back to the previous slide, all that I understand about God, the 2,000 that have been fulfilled so far, uh, thousands of years in advance, hundreds of years um, in, 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 in the future, uh, uh, in great detail, zero error, all that I understand about God, the 2,000 fulfilled so far, leads me to trust him and that which I do not understand, including the book of Revelation, the 500 yet to be fulfilled. Now, let's apply these four views of Revelation to the section of Revelation that we're looking at today, chapters eight and nine. Uh, the historicist approach of these two chapters says the trumpets speak of a series of invasions against the Roman Empire, the Vandals, the Huns, the Saracens, and the Turks, 
The sixth trumpet brings the fall of Constantinople to the Turks in 1453. Uh, the preterist approach, uh, this uh, with chapters eight and nine says these two chapters, the four, four trumpets correspond to disasters inflicted by the Romans on the Jewish people in the Jewish war, uh, AD 66 to 70. Uh, the futurist approach, either literally or symbolically, the trumpets represent calamities that will be endured by the unrepentant inhabitants of earth during the coming seven year tribulation. Uh, these may be supernatural judgments direct from the hand of God, or merely the disastrous effects of our improper stewardship of the earth, for example, pollution and climate change, and our abuse of technology, uh, for example, uh, nuclear uh, weapons. And so um, this misuse of uh, technology, uh, we've seen that with nuclear weapons. We've also seen it, uh, for example, extracting DNA from a mosquito and fossilized amber that causes dinosaurs to once again roam the earth. I'm just kidding on that one. Uh, that's for you fans of Jurassic Park. But we know that sometimes uh, it gets abused, technology gets abused, we don't steward uh, the earth well, and so those natural consequences happen, or it's something specifically from the hand of God uh, during the coming seven-year tribulation. Now, in uh, Revelation chapter four, verse one, that we saw earlier, God says, uh, come up here, and he says it to John, but futurists believe that he's saying it to all those that are followers of Jesus. And this is what we call the rapture, when the church is instantaneously taken to heaven. And then once we're gone, there's this tribulation period, and that's what chapters eight and nine are talking about uh, here today. And then number four is the symbolic approach. Catastrophes reminiscent of the plagues of Egypt befall sinful humanity many times in history, demonstrating God's displeasure and like trumpet blasts, warning of worse things to come upon the unrepentant. Sinful humanity typically absorbs these injuries with defiance, refusing to repent. So now let's dig into these two chapters, uh, all of chapter eight, and then we'll do a few verses from chapter nine. The first thing we see is silence, uh, prayers for justice, and then judgment. Uh, Revelation eight, verse one. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half of an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people. These are the cries down through the centuries of God's people crying out to God for judgment, crying out to God for justice, for the injustices that have been done against them. Went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. This is the judgment in response to the built up prayers, cries for justice, from God's people down through the ages. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Uh, verse six. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared uh, to sound them. 
Throughout history, those who are oppressed have been crying out to God for justice. And they may not have had weapons or votes or money or prestige, but they have had prayer. And now these prayers finally, uh, after being built up cumulatively down through the years, they finally bring about God's judgment and his justice. Now, that doesn't take us off the hook. We should all do all that we can in our strength and energy and power uh, to bring about justice uh, to our communities and to our world. This is part of our responsibility, our calling as followers of Jesus. That's why, for example, here at Purpose Church, uh, we have a justice pastor, a pastor devoted to leading us in that direction, Pastor Tomiko, who leads our justice ministries uh, here at Purpose Church, things like our For Life ministry and, and against human trafficking and, and foster care and adoption and all these other uh, justice ministries. And I've said before, Pastor Tomiko has become legendary in this area in Southern California uh, for her efforts against human trafficking. And uh, so we do everything within our strength, but ultimately final justice is in God's hands and it will be minister, administered at the end of time. Now, God is a God of love, but he's also a God of judgment. Now, some people say that a God of judgment, having a God of judgment promotes violence, but I believe that the exact opposite is true. Um, let me explain what I mean by that. If there is no God, and if there is no judgment, and there is no justice in the end, that I need to take it into my own hands if it's gonna get done. If there is no God, if he doesn't exist, and so there's no ultimate justice at the end of this life, at the end of this time on earth, then I'd better get it now. I better get revenge now. I better take matters into my own hand now. But if we believe that there is a God and we believe that justice will eventually be done, now we can leave it in his hands, we don't have to take it on ourselves. We can leave it up to him. Paul wrote to the followers of Jesus in Rome who were being crushed by Roman oppression, just horrific injustice done against them. <coughs> and said, don't take revenge because God says, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And so when you believe there's a God, when you believe there's a coming judgment, when you believe that there is a, a coming time of justice, you don't have to take action on your own. You can leave it up to God. Do all that we can, that we're able to do to administer justice and to bring about justice, but that which is out of our control, we leave it in the hands of God. Now the first trumpet in verse eight. The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. Now historicists point to this amazing description of this uh, period uh, used by um, historians, but particularly a non-Christian, you would even maybe call him an anti-Christian historian named Edward Gibbon. And he wrote the famous book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And even though he wrote it like 250 years ago, in 1776, the same year 
our, our country was born. That long ago, he is still the gold standard for this particular time period. And it is just crazy. He was not thinking, I guarantee you, he was not thinking of the book of Revelation when he wrote The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, uh, you know, and, and the fall and decline of the Roman Empire. He was not thinking of it because uh, he was either not a Christian or he was very against Christianity. But it's, it's crazy how his, his description of that time period, just as he dealt with the actual history of that time period, how it corresponds with what we see in the book of Revelation. That's what gets historicists so excited about their particular view of the book of Revelation. He wrote about the tremendous sound of the Gothic trumpet and how Rome had not had to confront foreign invaders for 800 years. Wow, what, what, what a stunning thing it was for the Roman Empire. For 800 years, we've been a nation for 246 years. So multiply that by three or four times. And you imagine how it would shock us if a foreign country invaded us right now, invaded our, our own territory, our own country, geographically. It would be stunning. Now imagine that that hasn't happened for three or four times how old uh, America is. Uh, the Romans were stunned by this attack. Uh, Rome have had to evacuate their troops in Britain to reinforce its northern borders. The Goths attacked Gaul, Spain, and Italy from the north, burning or destroying everything in their path. Gibbon writes, blood and conflagration and the burning of trees and herbage marked their path. The third of the, church, the earth that was destroyed has been referred to as either the Roman Empire, which is about a third of the then known world at that time, or one third of the Roman Empire, namely the western part of the empire. Now the preterist quotes the Jewish historian Josephus, who never read the book of Revelation. But he tells about how the Romans cut down all the trees and destroyed all the greenery for an eighth of a mile all around Jerusalem when they destroyed it in 70 AD. So again, kind of like Gibbon, he, 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 well he and Gibbon may have read the book of Revelation, didn't believe in it, but Josephus never even read it. And yet his descriptions are so close to what the book of Revelation says here. Now, the futurist believes that the first trumpet might be nuclear weapons and that affect a third of the world's population. And boy, we, we see that today, don't we? I mean, I thought the, the use of nuclear weapons was just, people would be out of their minds to do it. It's been a while that anybody's even talked about the possibility of it. And yet with the war in Ukraine, uh, you read all the time now that Putin, if, if he gets into this jam or if he gets backed into this corner, uh, there might be a consideration to do, use nuclear weapons. It was unthinkable. It's been unthinkable for decades now. And now this thing is thinkable um, once again. The futurist points to that. And that's what they believe is happening here with these trumpets. Then the second trumpet, verse eight, the second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea turned into blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, just a little bit of a, Humorous aside here, 
Um, I usually listen to worship songs, either worship songs or movie themes on Spotify um, when I write my sermon. And I, while I was writing um, this particular section, uh, the theme to Deep Impact, which is a movie about uh, an asteroid hitting planet Earth, um, from really parallel with the section I was studying, uh, followed by Titanic. The theme to Titanic came on, um, which has to do with the sinking of a ship. And so I thought, boy, that is just perfect background music for this uh, preparation. But I digress. The historicists believe that the great mountain is the Vandals under ki their king Genesaric, Genesaric in 430 A.D., Historians call him the tyrant of the sea. For over six centuries, 600 years, no hostile ship had ever uh, disputed Rome's uh, undisputed mastery of the sea. Um, I mean, we, the United States has been a naval power for about 200 years. For three times that, for 600 years, nobody could challenge Rome on, on the seas uh, with their ships. They had complete domination. But again, according to Gibbon, around 450 AD, Genseric and the Vandals destroyed this huge number of Roman ships and they slaughtered their sailors and portions of the sea became red. The preterists believe that the mountain is Jerusalem being burned by the Romans. And Josephus describes this battle on the Sea of Galilee in which the Romans slaughtered the Jews, Sea of Galilee, where Jesus did much of his teaching. And, and he talked about how the Romans pursued the, the Jewish people uh, in their boats onto the Sea of Galilee and slaughtered them, and the lake became all bloody and full of the dead. The futurists believe that the blazing mountain uh, might be an, uh, an asteroid, such as from the movie Deep Impact. Now, those who use the symbolic approach believe that John might be using imagery from the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79 in order to describe uh, the coming judgment. And then the third trumpet in verse 10. The third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is wormwood, which um, in the Greek means a bitter substance. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. Now, for the historicist, the great star here was Attila the Hun. Uh, the appearance of the Huns was as sudden as a blazing meteor. I mean, he, he and the Huns came out of nowhere. Historians tell us that the Romans knew almost nothing about the Huns prior to 440 AD. And all of a sudden, they don't have any warning, out, out of the blue, 800,000 Huns appear on the banks of the Danube River ready to invade the Roman Empire. Now here's the bad news. The General Maximus had been dead for 250 years. So I'm... I'm joking yet again, but you just got to think about it if you've ever known General Maximus. What, what an awesome battle that would have been. Attila the Hun versus 
a Maximus from Gladiator. That is just, uh, that, that would be something to behold. By the way, another uh, tangent on top of a tangent. Uh, my favorite book on leadership is a book called Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln on Leadership. This is my favorite. But believe it or not, my second favorite book on leadership is The Leadership Secrets of Attila the Hun. And I'm, I'm, I kid you not, he was a genius as a leader. And it's just a fascinating book. Um, I'd recommend both of them to you. Now, historians tell us that in the Italian Alps, historians estimate that the Huns killed about 300,000 Romans. And historians tell us they shed so much blood that they polluted the waters that have their springs there. There, there was so many that died that actually polluted the headwaters of, of their rivers, their springs that came down from the Italian Alps. The futurists believe that the great star is possibly a comet-like uh, object that breaks up when it enters the atmosphere and it scatters itself throughout the earth, falling into rivers and springs and poisoning them. And uh, now we come to the fourth trumpet in verse 12. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars. So that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. Now the historicists believe that this is a symbolic of the fall of Rome in 476 AD. Uh, the eagle here uh, was a symbol of uh, Rome. It's called the Aquila. And the Aquila uh, in Latin was the symbol for the Roman Empire, especially as a standard of the Roman legion. Now back to the verse. So we, the historicists believe that this eagle is symbolic of the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, this was accomplished by the Germans under the leadership of a doser who became the king eventually of Italy. Now for the preterist, uh, this is the final destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. And uh, back to the passage once again, where it says, woe, woe, woe. Uh, these three woes for the preterist who believe it was fulfilled around the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, uh, the three woes are number one, the disunity of the Jewish people before the Roman attack. Number two, the besieging of the city by the Romans. And number three, the burning of the temple and the death of nearly one million Jewish men. Now for the futurists, the fourth temp tr trumpet, uh, where, where it talks about, let's go back one verse uh, to verse 12, um, where uh, for the futurists, it talks about a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. That what's being described here is the nuclear winter that would follow a nuclear exchange. Now I want us to skip uh, down uh, to the final verses of chapter nine. Uh, I, 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 yes, um, let's skip down to the final verses of uh, uh, the final two verses of chapter nine. Because here is the main point of these two chapters. These two chapters we've been going through with all the trumpets. Here, here's, here's the big point. 
and that is resistance to repentance. Uh, the whole idea, the whole challenge to us, that here we see despite many opportunities and many warnings, some people never respond to Jesus' call to follow him. Uh, Proverbs 19, verse three, a person's own folly leads to their ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. That, that so many times I find in my own life that I'll make my own mistakes and I'll go my own way rather than God's way. And then when I get in trouble, I shake my fist at God. I, my heart rages against the Lord. And, and these two uh, chapters just describe this, how, how people just continue to just uh, rebel against the Lord despite the judgment that begins to fall on them. And let me ask you a question. Do troubles in your life pull you towards God or push you away from him? It's interesting. For some people, trouble makes their heart more sensitive and they draw closer to God. For others, it makes their heart hard and, and they're more embittered against God. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. Let me ask it another way. Is your heart made of wax or of clay? You've heard the old saying, the same sun that softens the wax will harden the clay. This is what we gotta be careful of, that, that we, we all go through trouble in this life and, and, and we all go through difficulties and do those things make us repent? Do they make us turn towards God or do they harden our hearts against God? And, and these trumpet passages in Revelation chapters eight and nine, they warn us of this. Proverbs 29 verse one, whoever remains stiff-necked or hardened after many rebukes, they go through a lot of trouble and they're still stiff-necked, stubborn against God, will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Uh, skipping down now to verse 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts. Uh, this word magic art from the original Greek is pharmakia, uh, for which, from which you get our word pharmaceutical, um, which suggests the use of consciousness altering drugs, uh, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Now the futurist believes that these things will increase during um, the last days. Let's go back one verse to verse 20. The futurists believe that in the last days be, before the end, uh, people will increasingly um, uh, worship the demonic um, and idols. They'll worship anything, find anything to worship other than God, anything to believe other than God's word. Um, now the next verse in verse 21. Uh, murdering in all of its different forms, drug use, sexual immorality, and brazenly stealing things. H.A. Ironside writes, it is a solemn thing 
to realize that even judgments such as these will have no effect as far as leading people back to God with repentance is concerned. Punishment does not of itself lead people to repentance. And so these chapters illustrate that despite all these troubles, all these difficulties, all these uh, preliminary judgments by God, people still don't repent. And yet sometimes, as Ironside says here, punishment does not of itself lead people to repentance, but there is something that does. Romans 2, verse 4, Paul writes to the Romans, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Uh, at the end of Jesus' life before his death on the cross, uh, Luke records this in Luke chapter 23, and he says that all the judgment uh, of our sin was poured out on Jesus as he hung to die on the cross. There was the judgment. There was the, the, the judgment of the trumpets falling on Christ, all of it on Christ and Christ alone. And in that terrible moment of being tortured and mocked and made fun of and executed by his enemies, Jesus turns, looks to those crucifying him and says these words, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Let's go back to that uh, Romans 2 verse 4. God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And in the gospel, the other biographers of Jesus say that at the beginning, both people crucified with Jesus both of them rejected Jesus. Both of them um, mocked him, rejected him. Despite being crucified next to him, their hearts were hard. But then Luke records that one of the two saw God's kindness in action. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And it was God's kindness that led him to repentance. He had a change of heart. And he said, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said, for this, for those, that simple change of heart, he promised him, today you're gonna be with me in paradise. And the same thing is available for you wherever you are watching in your living room or by your computer God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Would you open your heart to that kindness and pray with me right now? Oh God, we open our hearts and we say three simple words, sorry, thank you, and please. We, we sense your kindness. Uh, judgment threatens. And yet in the midst of that judgment, are the words of Jesus. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they, they're doing. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. So right now, Lord, we say, I'm sorry for, for following my own way 
and rebelling against you. I'm sorry for not believing in you. I'm sorry for the wrong that I've done to others and that I've done to you. Thank you that all of that judgment fell on Jesus on the cross so that I could be forgiven. Sorry, thank you, and now say the third word to God. Please, please God, uh, be my savior. Please God, um, be my leader, be my king, be my Lord. I wanna follow you from this day forward. It is your kindness that now leads to me to repentance. I say sorry, thank you, and please. I uh, open my heart to receive you as my Lord and Savior. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And wherever you are, if you agree with me, just simply say out loud, amen and amen.